Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. One of the things that at the end of the day is, is true is that more than people will remember the facts of exactly who said what in the exchange, they're going to remember how they felt treated. And moving your purpose from, let me just reiterate and persuade you about why I'm right, to instead my purpose is to have a learning conversation. I don't know whether I'll change my mind at the end of this, but I at least want to learn why we see it differently and, and how it's been for you and what you're worried about. And we also try to teach people to listen for feelings as well as listen for facts. Um, because if I can listen for feelings, I can really hear what's behind your concerns, objections, etc. Conversations in which the goal is to learn what the other person's thinking and to have the other person learn what you're thinking. Listening for feelings in conversations rather than trying to make points and win arguments. These are just two ways to navigate difficult conversations that we explore on today's episode. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And today we have an interview with Sheila Heen. Sheila is the founder of Triad Consulting Group, and she's been on the Harvard Law School faculty as a lecturer on law since 1995. Sheila spent more than 20 years with the Harvard Negotiation Project, developing negotiation theory and practice. She specializes in particularly difficult negotiations, what we might call crucible negotiations, where emotions run high and relationships become strained. For the purposes of our discussion today, Sheila is the co-author of two New York Times bestsellers. The first book was Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, and her most recent book, Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, <laughs> Even When It's Off Base, Unfair, Poorly Delivered, and Frankly, You're Not in the Mood. What you'll hear from this conversation today is how you can, especially in the midst of a crucible, allow for both sides in a conversation not only to speak, but to truly be heard. And as you'll hear from Sheila herself as we kick off her interview, she comes by her expertise in this area quite honestly. Well, Sheila, it's an honor to have you. So just so the listeners know kind of how this all came about is, uh, like many of us uh, in the era of COVID, um, I have three uh, adult kids in their 20s uh, who are all, you know, wonderful people uh, just pursuing different things. And uh, my daughter's in the middle of my two sons. Uh, she said, Dad, I came across this book and an article on difficult conversations. And I think, you know, the author of that would be great to have on your podcast. So I took a look and I thought, wow, well, we are Crucible Leadership and Beyond the Crucible. We're all about bouncing back from adversity. And as you're doing that, you are going to have some difficult conversations. And so how do you do that well? So I was fascinated by this. And I like to think I'm reasonably good at communications, fairly discerning. But I learned a lot just from reading some of the stuff that you've written, Sheila. It's like, wow. You know, I mean, I'm not bad in this area, but there's a lot I didn't know. So talk about 
what led you to write these books? Obviously, one follows the other, difficult conversation, and thanks for the feedback. But what what was some of the genesis of that? Was there anything in growing up or... Often there's a, mm-hmm. a story behind the story, but what was what's sort of the backstory that led you to focus so much of your, you know, working life on these two books? Yeah, it's such a good question, and and it's interesting because I think when you look back on your life, things are much more clear than when you're living them at the time, <laughs> right? That's the that's the challenge. But there's also a way in which you're stitching together things which may or may not be related, right? But when I do look back, I think about the fact that I grew up in the Midwest, in Iowa and Nebraska, Mm. um, where, although I don't think there were big secrets that were not talked about in my family, the general tenor, I think, is, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And conflict was kind of a big deal. Like, I have very vivid memories of the arguments between my parents that I witnessed because they were relatively rare. So I knew it was a big Mm. deal. And then in college, I went to college in California and, you know, got interested in public policy and international relations and was doing simulations, negotiating, you know, between the two world wars, that kind of thing. And my advisor, as I was thinking about going to law school, my dad's a lawyer, by the way, said, you know, I really have an instinct that this negotiation thing might be your thing. And if that's your thing, Harvard really is the center of some of the most interesting work being done. And that's kind of how I ended up at Harvard. But if we then also want to go one step further, I was in a really hard on again, off again relationship during law school. Hmm. We kept breaking up and getting back together and breaking up and getting back together. And I knew in my heart of hearts, this was not the right relationship for me, but I kept getting talked back into it. And I was simultaneously taking negotiation class, serving as a teaching assistant for negotiation class, and trying to figure out why can I not negotiate my way out of this relationship? (laughs) And a lot of it was a a conversation with myself about whether I, you know, he would say, you're not giving it a fair shot, et cetera. And I think, well, I want to be fair, so I guess. And, And it took me a long time to realize this is not actually a negotiation. Like, if I don't want to be in this relationship, he doesn't have to agree. And he right. can think I'm a terrible person. And okay, <laughs> I am hopeful he's not right about that. But, you know, he can exist in the world and think that about me and I that will not kill me. So that's a little bit of, yeah. I think, the backstory of what led me to what is missing from these negotiation skills and why am I so stuck when I think I'm a pretty thoughtful, you know, reasonable person. And of course, when I watch other people be in on-again, off-again relationships, I think, like, why are you being so stupid? <laughs> I'm in one. When I'm in one, I can't seem to find the exit door. It keeps leading me back into the room. Well, it probably makes us think, as, you know, as smart as we all like to think we are, we have moments where we feel maybe we're kind of dumb and stupid. I mean, you know, where we're kind of less than we, you know, we're not operating at maximum intellectual, emotional, spiritual capacity and. You know, I think we're that's all... exactly right. And sometimes I'm very aware that I'm not operating <laughs> at my best. <laughs> and other times I'm so stuck that I can't see that I am stuck or why I'm stuck. Whereas people around me see it faster. Well, and that's than why I friends are useful. I mean, just one other point on this. Do you have a kind of, I'm obviously very familiar with your books and 
reread it and say, boy, you know, back when I was in California in that relationship, I needed to read, you know, think about chapter six and seven and five I had kind of okay, but you know, you could probably, because you actually give examples in your book of relationships. You give professional examples, but relationship examples. And you look at that and say, you know, diagnosis, like self-autopsy, if you will. Yeah, that was this and this that was really missing in that conversation. Yeah. And by the way, I can't take all the credit for that because what ended up happening is that I was doing independent research projects during law school with Doug Stone and Bruce Patton, who became, we became co-authors of Difficult Conversations. And my third year paper, which Bruce supervised, um, was actually about a terrible interaction I had in an elevator when I went to renew my passport in Los Angeles. And there was someone in the elevator making these awful racist, Mm -hmm. demeaning comments. And we're in a packed elevator of people and no one said anything. And it was so upsetting. I just felt ill. I was like trembling when I got out of the elevator and I felt ill for the rest of the day and every time I thought about it. And so I decided to take that moment as a moment of analysis to try to figure out what was going on with me. What was I trying to accomplish? What were my options that I couldn't see at the moment? And so I wrote that paper while Bruce and Doug were actually asking some of the same questions. So as I graduated and joined them full time, we found that we were coming at those questions from different directions, but that we were trying to see what are the patterns in what gets us stuck and what would help. And it turns out those patterns, the underlying structure of difficult conversations is the same, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the book really with a huge range, every possible combination or context we could think of. We wanted to include real examples. And and that's very helpful. And we're going to get into here in uh, just a second, just some of the key elements of difficult conversations. But as I reflect on this, um, you know, I think as some you know, listeners will know, I grew up in a large, uh, wealthy family newspaper business in Australia, kind of had the equivalent of New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. And, you know, like some other relatives of mine, I went, did my undergrad at Oxford, worked in Wall Street and banking, Harvard Business School. So I like to think I'm, you know, reasonably intelligent. And so I come back and I launched this two billion plus takeover and did so many dumb things. I mean, that was within months of graduating from Harvard Business School. It meant to give you some level of understanding of things, you know, and there was so many dumb, I even look back, that must have been another person. I couldn't have been that. So many dumb assumptions, but often when you look beneath the waterline, it was various emotional dynamics without belaboring it too much. Some other relatives had thrown my dad out as chairman 11 years before in 76, it's come 87, felt like the company wasn't being well run along the ideals of the founder, wasn't being well managed. So there's all these emotional subtext in which my normal level of reasoning was uh, subverted by some various emotional things that I wasn't fully aware of that led me to make some poor decisions. And the, the classic was talk about difficult non-conversations I was so focused on, I don't need any more information. There's right, there's wrong, let's go. Sort of like the charge of the light brigade, you know, launched this takeover. And I had conversations with other close family members who were heavily involved in the family business, like the night before. I'm doing this in the morning. Clearly, I wasn't interested in listening. I was informing them. I mean, what is, yes. it's a rhetorical question, which we don't need to answer, <laughs> but what is the point? That's not a conversation. That's like an edict. That's like a diatribe. I mean, it was just, 
I just blindsided them. I just can't believe I did that. It was just so uh, stupid and disappointing. And anyway, so all that's to say is bright people can make really dumb decisions, you know, because it's all this emotional feeling identity subtext. So, And that's an interesting yeah. point yeah. to sort of talk about, you know, we talk about difficult conversations in the context of your book, Sheila, but... You know, we've started to call them crucible conversations here at Crucible Leadership because, and what you just described, Warwick, is crucibles can be conversations that aren't had, right? Mm -hmm. They can cause crucibles if you don't have conversations. And sometimes conversations can be, the actual difficult conversation itself can be a crucible. And I, I pulled a statistic or some stats, Sheila, from an article that someone wrote uh, in reference to your book, and this was from a 2013 survey of 200 professionals. And this is what, what was found about people's attitudes toward difficult conversations. 97% of respondents said they were concerned about the associated levels of stress for the other person. 94% were worried about damaging the other person's self-esteem, 92% were fearful of causing upset. And this is the one that really got me. 80% of respondents said these conversations were part of their job. They had to have these difficult conversations. Eight of 10 people said they had to have them, but more than half indicated they didn't feel like they had adequate training on how to conduct them. And I think that goes to speak to a couple of quotes from your book, Difficult Conversations. One the idea that you got to have them, but you don't want to have them. You talk about how delivering a difficult message is like throwing a hand grenade. So that, that'll kind of scare you off a little bit. There, so there's that aspect of it. But on the positive side, what you say in the book is that we think there may be a broader organizational need driving interest in a business community. A recognition that the long-term success and even survival of many organizations may depend on their ability to master difficult conversations. That's a hard road to plow, a hard road to pave when 97% of people who responded, business professionals, say they're concerned about the levels of stress. Indeed it is. <laughs> yeah. And and I think part of what you're capturing in those statistics, I think, is the either or choice that we feel work. Like you were saying, I'm smart. I've run the numbers. I have the story that reinforces why I'm right about what I'm about to do. And that story feels like I'm just factually right mm -hmm. about the risks and what we're putting on the line and, and how this is going to turn out. But of course, at a deeper level, it's also about the story we tell ourselves about who am I and what are my responsibilities here? Or I'm playing the role of the hero who's going to save the day, right? right. And that's sort of happening at the deeper level. And Gary, when you raise how worried we are about creating stress for the other person or mm -hmm. emotional upset or self-esteem issues, that's tied to identity because we're thinking, well, I'm not, I don't want to be the kind of person who upsets other people, right? Or doesn't treat them fairly, but I'm now caught because I want to be a good colleague, but I don't know how to bring this up without being a bad person. Mm. And I think the problem is that we're thinking my choices are either explain to them why I'm right and they're wrong um, or why they're the problem and they need to change or keep quiet about it. And one of the things we say 
in the book is that we are in a message delivery sort of stance. So it's like, do I throw the hand grenade or not? And holding on to it, not saying anything is no better, right? Once the pin has been pulled, you can't hold on to the hand grenade. Either way, damage will be done to you, to them. Either way, damage is being done to you and to them. Yeah. Or to both. One of the things I think it's fascinating is you break down conversations into like three areas, the what happened conversation, the feelings conversation, and the identity. It made so much sense as I was reading it. And often, I think, as you point out, we get into the what happened, you know, they did that this was wrong, or I said this, or we just kind of, we just dealing in, well, let's talk about the facts, okay? Uh, this business decision makes no sense, therefore I have to correct them, or and you're not at all realizing there's a feeling and a subtext and an identity. So talk about why we just tend to deal with the visible, if you will, with the what happened and and why those other two components are so important. Because that's, I think most of us, and I like to think I have some, I'm reasonably good at communication. It's one of my highest values, but I didn't think about those things consciously. So talk about the differences in those three. Yeah. So this is sort of the central learning for us that's captured in the book, which is that if we want to understand these conversations, because there's so much that people don't say to each other because they're afraid to say it, you've got to look beyond what people say to what they're really each thinking and feeling and what we call their internal voice. And if you look at people's internal voices in the midst of a difficult conversation or a conflict, what you'll find is that they're very predictable. What we're preoccupied with is very predictable and it falls into those three buckets that you mentioned, Warwick. The first is that we each have a story about what we call what happened, which includes what has happened up until this point. I've got a story about that. What is happening as you and I are or aren't having this conversation and what we each think should happen. And that story itself actually has three subcomponents because we're each preoccupied with what we're right about whose fault it is that we're having this problem. And to the extent that you're being difficult, I have a theory about why you're acting that way, what your intentions or motivations or character might be. You just don't get it. You're controlling, you're whatever. You won't listen to anybody, you're power hungry. So that's our story about what happened. And that's going on for both parties, by the way. But then if you look a little deeper, by the time something becomes a difficult conversation, one and often both parties have strong feelings that we're trying to figure out what to do with, maybe particularly in a professional context. And those feelings are often a, a bundle of frustration, anxiety, confusion, maybe self-doubt, anxiety, guilt. We're not talking about them, but they're infusing the conversation. Um, and then at the deepest level, if something's a difficult conversation, what we started to notice is that there's something the situation suggests about you that feels like it's at stake. Am I kind or not kind if I'm going to have this conversation and hurt someone's feelings? Am I being fair or not fair? Am I competent? Do I know what I'm doing? Warwick, I wonder to what extent the night before you heard people's doubts about the plan, your plan, as maybe we don't believe in you, we're not sure you're worthy, we're not sure you're smart enough, and you're like, mm -hmm. I just came back from Harvard. All those people are maybe not smart enough, but I'm bringing that quote-unquote <laughs> wisdom right. back with me. I don't know if you felt that as an identity hook in their doubts about you. or yeah. about It's not really about you, but of course you hear it as doubts about me rather than doubts about my plan. Yeah, I mean, I think you tend to believe your own truth as being absolute truth. Like, 
you know, these other members of my family threw my dad out as chairman, who I thought was, you know, a brilliant intellectual person I admired and loved greatly. And how could they do that? So there was this emotional subtext. My parents reinforced me growing up, yep, you know, the company's not being well run and, you know, a bit too sensational in the, in the papers. So I just had this feeling of this is true and this almost heroic type of thing. So I felt like, well, I don't need more information because I know what's true. It's patently obvious. I didn't need to ask them their opinion. Well, maybe they right. thought my dad was hanging around too long and maybe it was time for a new direction. And, you know, I had this just notion of what was true, but some of these subtext of emotions of, uh, you know, how could they do this to uh, such a wonderful person? This feeling of this was not fair. This was not just, not conscious. And then identity, my whole identity was wrapped up with Fairfax Media and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you you tend to feel like, you know, it's just a sacred cause. I know, you know, it's, you know, what, what are they, that that uh, that phrase, you know, the path to hell of paid with good intentions, you know, beware the person who's on some righteous crusade or mission, you know. They can be good, but be careful, you know. Yes, uh, a lot absolutely. of bad things are done by well-meaning people, you know. Yeah. Sometimes not and- intentionally. And I, I think that one of the things, I mean, you have lots of company in history of sons and daughters who have their life story and purpose mm-hmm. wrapped up in or certainly heavily influenced by sort of avenging what happened to their parents. I mean, I'm, I, my dad left his firm for ethics reasons, right? And I think my own path of being an entrepreneur was heavily influenced by his view that organizations can make bad decisions Mm. and you need to stick up for what's right. Mm -hmm. So I also think that what we need to get out of, if you're going to have a better conversation and make good decisions, it means leaving behind each of us being focused on what we're right about and talking past each other and instead shifting to get curious about, well, so why do we see this so differently? Why am I so sure that this is the right path? And why are you really not sure, to say the least? And if we can tease apart, what are you looking at and what am I looking at? And why do we come to different conclusions here? We're at least going to have a better conversation where we're really listening to each other and we can isolate. Are we looking at different things? Are we interpreting them differently? Do we have different predictions? do you think this is the right path, but now it's not the right time? Like often mm-hmm. we're each actually right about what we think the conversation or the decision is about. And then shifting from blame to looking at what do we each contribute that got us here to this tough moment or to this place where there's conflict and friction between us. And that tells us what, if we each could change a couple things, would we be able to work better together, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's about actually first negotiating with your own internal voice then stepping into the conversation with a very different stance. Yeah, it's so true. It's funny, you know, um, I've kind of written a book that, you know, will get published next year that talks about leadership, but really through the lens of my story and some inspirational historical figures. But when it comes to myself, it's typically, you know, I did this, don't do this, you know, do this all instead. And one of the things I talk about is some of what you're saying exactly right now is, I had this belief of what is true about other family members, but I never sat down and chatted to them about, well, what's your perspective? What's your truth? What's your perspective? 
And if I'd done that, maybe I would have uh, learned some things. You can't always assume that your truth is the truth. So yeah, a lot of what you're saying, I look back on and saying, yeah, that would have been um, helpful. Even what I wanted to do in life, you know, I really wasn't wired to do be some Rupert Murdoch type of person. I'm more a reflective advisor. Just that's a whole nother conversation, which I talk a lot about in, in the book. So, um, but yeah, just that sense of, you know, be willing to listen. I love that phrase you just mentioned, not so much focused on blame, but contribution while you each contributing to the situation. That's talk about why that's such a, a huge paradigm shift, contribution versus blame. I think because, I mean, I think human beings, when, when things go wrong, we instinctively look for whose fault is this? And that answer tends to be singular. If it's not, you know, it's mostly your fault. It's at least like those guys are the ones who mm-hmm. drop the ball, right? Um, it might be a group. And making a shift to say, look, let's assume instead that everybody contributed in some way to the problem of where we are now. And it's, it's not necessarily 50-50, could be 90-10. But thinking about what did we each do or fail to do that got us here, then actually tells us what would solve the problem and allows us to hold each other accountable for choices that, okay, these are some things I think I need you to do differently. Here's what would be helpful if you could do it differently. Then let's check in because I don't want to have the same conversation next week and next month. And it allows us to actually signal that actually, I don't think this is about blame. This is about actually making it better and solving the problem. And that's a really strong signal to send. What the research shows is that one of the most reliable ways to build trust or regain trust is to make what's called a statement against interest, meaning Mm -hmm. to say something that you would not say it because it's not good for you, except for the need to be honest. And owning your contribution to the problem, saying, look, looking back, there are some things I wish I had done differently that I think didn't help us, is a really strong signal that's a statement against interest. It's saying, I, I'm not about blame. I just want this to get better. I think that's so true. What I love about some of the examples you mentioned is even if you don't think it's all your fault, just like it's part of being a leader is the being willing to go first to saying, well, I probably didn't help matters in that conversation when I said A or B or I assume that this and that about you and uh, you know I'm sorry or that probably didn't help then you give the other person space potentially to say yeah I probably could have handled it better rather than going in there all guns blazing saying look it ticks me off that you did A, B and C and therefore you are A and you are B it's different as you point out saying it made me feel that that's not saying it's truth but saying you are it's like it's your truth so just that willing to be vulnerable and go first, yeah, it doesn't guarantee a, a you know positive contribution, but it, it helps. I mean, that to it me makes so much helps. sense. It, yeah, it definitely helps. And also, if you look at the research, reciprocity is one of the strongest social norms. So if you blame me, I'm going to blame you back right. or, or blame somebody else. Right. But if you take the initiative as a leader to, to be accountable for your part of the problem, it's much more likely that I'll lean in to own mine. Now, what's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen is I say, oh gosh, work, I'm so glad you finally admitted that this is all your fault, right? <laughs> this, is, this conversation is going so much better than I expected it to. Um, but that's not, that doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. You can no. still then say, look, I do think that I did some things that didn't help. At the same time, I can't fix this by myself. 
I think actually there were a number of things that got us here and there are a couple things that would be helpful if, if you might be willing to change them. So that the risk that we feel we're taking is a risk that you can also influence over time. If they don't take the invitation right away, be patient and keep at it. Absolutely. And because so much of what we're talking about here is emotions, right? It's, it's the emotional undercurrent of the conversation. We're speaking words to each other, but what we're really doing is imparting emotions to each other. That's the thing that's not you know, being mm-hmm. seen in, in, in word clouds above our heads. Because that's true, when you do those kind of things, when there is reciprocity of, okay, I could have done this differently, or boy, I messed this up a little bit, it's true, right, that that de-escalates, and it can de-escalate rather quickly, the negative emotions of a conversation, and that helps it uh, move to a place where it's beneficial and healing. Is that fair? I think that's really fair, and I'm glad you brought that up, Gary, because one of the things that at the end of the day is is true is that more than people will remember the facts of exactly who said what in the exchange, they're going to remember how they felt treated and moving your purpose from let me just reiterate and persuade you about why I'm right to instead my purpose is to have a learning conversation. Mm. I don't know whether I'll change my mind at the end of this, but I at least want to learn why we see it differently and, and how it's been for you and what you're worried about. And we also try to teach people to listen for feelings as well as listen for facts. Um, because if I can listen for feelings, I can really hear what's behind your concerns, objections, et cetera. And, and it just seems um, like so yeah. much as you write in the book, what lies behind a conversation is sense of feelings and identity. And the more that you try to understand yourself and certainly understand the other person or through a learning conversation, that helps. I mean, that's that's so important. I know sometimes I'll be angry or fearful and I'll be like, and I won't know why. And so for me, if it's personal, you know, first off would be my wife and say, but I'm, I'm feeling fearful about something, but I don't know what it is. And we'll chat and nine times out of 10, it'll, you know, she'll nail it or we'll, we'll figure it out. And then, okay, now I can deal with or identity. I'm far more attuned to, to that. So the more we understand feelings and identity about ourselves, it's a big help. If we react, it's like, why did I react that way? What's, was it feelings, was it identity? And the more we can, you can't know somebody else's feelings and identity, but you can explore and probe. Um, I mean, that to me, that's, talk about why that is so huge in dealing with feelings and identity, both in yourself and having a learning conversation with others. Why is that a game changer rather than sticking in the what happened uh, circle? I think because what you're hearing is what's really at the heart of it. So by the time something becomes a difficult conversation, typically you've got two problems. You've got the surface problem of whatever we're arguing about. For instance, (laughs) I've had several conversations in the last three weeks um, with my parents about are we going to be able to get together at Christmas or not? Mm -hmm. So I live on the East Coast now. My sister, one of my sisters actually lives down the street from me in the same town on the East Coast. My parents still live in Nebraska. My other sister lives an hour away from them in Nebraska you know, we alternate years. So this is a heen uh, year. And my parents keep bringing up, you know, have we made a decision about Christmas? And I keep saying, I don't think we can make a decision yet, right? Like, right. And, and as long as I'm focused on what's the factual question we're trying to decide, is it safe? What are the, you guys are in a hot spot now. We used to be the hot spot. You know, what, what would it entail? What risks would we be taking? We can talk about that factual thing, but the deeper question is, how are we feeling treated around this 
you know, do you care enough about us? We're feeling lonely. We miss mm. you guys. I feel like you're arguing the facts, but that facts aren't what's actually causing me to bring this up again. I right. just feel sad. And I think the deeper issue is often how I'm feeling in the rela- how I'm feeling generally or how I'm feeling treated in the relationship. And so we might solve the surface issue if we stay there, but then the deeper issue is going to reinvent itself as whatever the next argument is or the next topic that we're not agreeing about. So listening for feelings and identity is really getting to the deeper issue that is trying to be expressed, whether or not it's even conscious sometimes. Yeah. I want to shift just a little bit to thanks for the feedback to at least touch on it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like obviously one, they're very linked. it, It feels like. You know, I mean, they are, yes. I mean, inevitably. Yeah, it's yeah. like the Godfather Part Two. It's, it's sort of the sequel to the, to the you you know, the first. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if uh, they probably had they had a different way of dealing with difficult conversations. Yeah, I guess. yeah, but, for sure. No, Indeed. <laughs> maybe Indeed. not. Why have them? Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, but I was fascinated by so often. There's a lot of literature about. Okay, here's how you need to give feedback. But talking about how you receive feedback, that's a different paradigm. You talk about truth, relationship, identity triggers. So it's because, yeah, I mean, as I tell my adult kids, don't assume you're going to get a good boss. I tell them most bosses are probably not going to be that good. Just it's just the way life is, you know. Yeah. Most yeah. bosses, they hate giving feedback. And, you know, the first time you'll get feedback is, well, you know, I hate giving feedback. So you're fired. So, I mean, say right. what? Well, I just don't like doing it. So, you know, here's the pink slip. It's like, really? Yeah, sorry, but bye. And and I'll be, even though I'm a word guy and I'm terrible at math, I'll be the numbers guy again and read some statistics again about this issue. To your point, Warwick, about bosses generally some aren't good, especially at this. This is uh, actually from an article that you wrote, Sheila, uh, a few years back for the Harvard Business Review. Only 36% of managers complete appraisals thoroughly and on time. That's just over one third. In one recent survey, 55% of employees said their most recent performance review had been unfair or inaccurate. And one in four said they dread such evaluations more than anything in their working lives. When senior HR executives were asked about their biggest performance management challenge, 63% cited managers' inability or unwillingness to have difficult feedback discussions. That is a huge problem in the workplace, and those statistics are crucible experiences waiting to happen. Going back to the words you used in your Difficult Conversations book, it's a, those are hand grenades waiting to be thrown. Yeah, I think that that's right, and I think that those statistics aren't going to be better this year for mm-hmm. us working remotely from each other, having a hard, you know, any goals that we set at the beginning of the year probably have either gone totally out the window or been heavily revised. And the sense of like, is this going to feel fair? And how do we connect with each other? This is actually a current project that we're working on right now, which is to put out resources for people to have richer and more meaningful conversations as we do check-ins, as we turn the corner on the year, we settle in for the next six months of working remotely. Because I think the question of can we connect 
And can we wrestle together with the challenges of offering honest and meaningful and fair feedback and taking in what others see, experience, the impact we have on them, and to sort it for what's valuable and not let it destroy us at the same time, I think is the central challenge. I think for most human beings, receiving feedback it's just so hard. I mean, you know, you hear books say, you know, use a three to one ratio, three to positive to one negative. But, you know, I'll hear some high performers say, like, don't tell me about any of the good stuff. I just want to know where I need to grow, which is like, in my view, like stupid. You know, you need to, you need to be told. <laughs> to use a technical business exactly. term from Harvard Business yeah. School. Yeah, exactly. stupid. Stupid, yes. <laughs> you need to know the areas where you actually did poorly, at, where you did well at. In fact, I often find... I'll remember the bad stuff, but if you if you t- ask me five minutes later, okay, you were just told by your family or by somebody at work there were five things you did well. What were those five things? Is I really can't remember. <laughs> I just yeah. I can't process good feedback, which is a whole nother discussion, which I think is fascinating. But it's just so hard, and I love these sort of truth relationship identity. I mean, you may believe it's not true, or oh, my boss is awful, and you know they're clueless, and I despise everything about them, whether it's their lifestyle, their politics, the way they're managed. They might be conventional, not have an entrepreneurial bone in their body, and they're giving me feedback. Come on, you know, they're, they're clueless. Or identity. If somebody said to you, well, um, gosh, Sheila, you know, uh, I know you think you're a pretty good uh, professor, but actually maybe not so much. Well, that strikes at the identity of who you are. It's like, excuse me? <laughs> you know, really? I think I'm, there's room for improvement. I think I'm pretty good. Or, you know, me, I've done a lot of executive coaching and, uh, gee, you know, you're a terrible executive coach. Wow, really? I thought I'm pretty good at listening to people and discerning. And so that's tough stuff. I mean, I read it, but to receive feedback when there's these relationship and identity triggers and, I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, that that's tough. Yeah. Well, so I think the shift for us was the shift from thinking about how to give feedback effectively to, well, gosh, what's so hard for all of us about receiving it? Whether it's formal, like those dreaded reviews, or informal, like I got taken off the project without any conversation because my boss won't have the conversation. How do I figure out whether that even is feedback? So maybe I'll just say a couple of things about it. One is that what we found is all of us really do have three kinds of triggered reactions when we have feedback incoming, direct or indirect. Um, And as you say, one is truth triggers, like what's wrong with the feedback? Is it accurate? Does it fully understand the situation? Is it good or bad advice? Would it work? It's all about assessing the quality of the feedback itself. The second is a relationship trigger and that is everything around who gave me the feedback. Do I like them? Do I trust them? Do I think they're credible? Do I wanna be like them? What are their real motives? etc. And the irony here is the who looms larger than the what. The who actually, people that we find difficult and don't want to be like, sometimes actually are valuable sources of learning for us, <laughs> right? They bring out our worst, it's their fault, but of course it is our worst. And annoyingly, <laughs> they can sometimes have valuable things to offer. And then the third is an identity trigger, and that's the story we have about who we are and also our sensitivity to feedback. What we found is that individual sensitivity can vary by up to 3,000%. Wow. So for some people, you're really 
undersensitive and people have to really hit you over the head before you even understand that it is feedback for you. And for <laughs> others, you're going to hear feedback in any little hint of anything, even beyond what anybody intends. Mm -hmm. So figuring out how do I understand my own profile around feedback and how do I coach other people on how to give me feedback effectively as part of part of the journey of becoming better at receiving. Well, that, that's fascinating because for some people it may be, you know, you'll need to hit me with a two before before I'll, I'll listen. You know, me, yeah, and, I, I, and saying, do hit me with a two by four, by the way. Yeah, me, I'm, uh, I guess I'm wide at the other end of the spectrum is I get discerning pretty well. So you don't have to yell. You just say something softly, message received. I mean, it's, I may agree or disagree, but I'm the other end. So yeah, don't yell or shout. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, don't use the two before yeah. with me because it, you know, it won't be very effective. But that's so valuable. But gosh, I mean, I, this whole, I mean, obviously the very lengthy um, feedback and uh, difficult conversations, but it's just, you know, I love the phrase you use about, you know, need to grow and be accepted. If feedback was done better, it would be a game changer in our world if people were really focused on giving it in a way that could be heard and people would receive it in a way, even if it was done poorly, gosh, maybe this jerk is telling me something I can't believe it, you know, is actually helpful, you know, even though I despise who he is kind of deal. Yeah. And I, I think for me, the most, and I know we're short on time, so maybe, maybe I'll offer the most hopeful and powerful thing that I've found mm -hmm. personally in this journey for myself which is that by understanding what's so hard about receiving and understanding that receiving feedback is actually a distinct leadership skill and I can get better mm. at it. I can get better. And if I become better at it as a leader, the receiving side, then I actually become a better giver myself. I have better feedback conversations in all directions. But to me, the thing that really lands it for me is that that actually means that I don't have to wait around for the perfect mentor to show up or wait around for somebody to have time for me. I can actually be reflective about and ask for what I need from people. And, you know, we have a, a theory about what people do need, which is three different types of feedback, appreciation. And that might be words, but for other people, like, I don't need to hear the words. They're mm -hmm. embarrassing and put me on the spot. But the fact that you come to me with your toughest problems makes me feel appreciated. Mm -hmm. So I need to think about what makes me feel seen and appreciated. Um, and when do I need some of that coaching, which is just the engine for mm -hmm. learning anything designed to help me improve counts as, as coaching. And what do I want coaching about and who might be able to offer it to me? Not just the person above me, but people in my own team, they have coaching for me. They're just not telling me because they don't know if I want to know. And how do I ask for one thing that I might think about, regularly that I could change. And that's so helpful. You know, don't, don't ask for everything, ask for one thing. You know, it's funny when I think of great leaders and it's, it's tough in our world today to think of, think of them, but you look back in history and as I'm sure, you know, Abraham Lincoln is voted pretty much every year by historians as the greatest president at Washington's number two, but they always vote for Lincoln. And you think about some of his personality characteristics he had this ability to receive feedback better than pretty much most people I know. Like there's a fr one time uh, somebody said, well, um, you know, Mr. Lincoln, I believe in this uh, area, you're an idiot. And he said, well, you're probably right, but tell me why. His first reaction yes. wasn't, yes. how could you possibly call me Abraham Lincoln idiot? He said, well, I'd, I'd like to learn. So yeah. Yeah, he combined 
certainly a lot of drive and is extremely secure with a sense of humility, a sense of curiosity, a sense of willingness to to learn, not just accept what was given to him. So I often think it's the character behind the leader that determines greatness. So as you're talking about how to receive feedback, here's a pretty good example of, of best practices of how to do it, how to do it well, how to receive it and not just instantly reject it. I love that example because it, it really shifts us from our instinct often, which is the feedback is incoming and I have to decide as it's coming in, do I agree with it or do I not agree with it? Is this good feedback, helpful feedback? Is it right or is it wrong? And Lincoln, your example from Abraham Lincoln really says, I I reserve the right to decide later whether I think there's something valuable here. My purpose in this conversation is just to learn more about what you see. And then I can sort for myself what's valuable about it and set the rest of it aside. And that actually diffuses the tension in the conversation because it leaves me more open to learning and listening because I'm not deciding. Mm -hmm. I have to first understand it, then I can decide what I want to take from it later. Mm. Um, And that's just gives you a ton of freedom and humility in the conversation. Absolutely. I can see the flight attendants are, are coming through the cabin to pick up to pick up They're our peanut bags. Yeah, coming through the cabin to pick up our peanut bags. So the captain is is turned on the fastened seatbelt side and, and, and it's time to land the plane in a bit. Not now mm-hmm. yet, but in a bit. But there's something you wrote, Sheila, in this article that I referred to from the Harvard Business Review back in uh, 2013 that about why feedback is hard. And to hear you describe it as a leadership skill to receive feedback is itself a leadership skill. And then to see this reason that you explain why it's difficult, I think those things coalesce really nicely Mm -hmm. into why these can be crucible moments for people. And that the difficulty of receiving feedback, you wrote, what makes it hard is that it hits at the juncture of our need to grow and our need to be accepted as who we are. It's almost, you know, a push me, pull you kind of situation. There's a, it can feel like it's dissonant. How do we get beyond that? How do we move beyond that? You had mentioned that there are three types of feedback. I think I heard you say appreciation and coaching. Was there a third one that we missed? There's a third one, which is evaluation. Okay. And evaluation rates or ranks you. It tells you where you stand, how you're doing against some set of criteria or expectations. And I would say we need all three kinds to learn and grow, but we need different kinds at different times. And evaluation, Gary, coming back to what you were just mentioning, is the most emotionally volatile, being judged, mm-hmm. measured, ranked, assessed, right. whether you're worthy enough, is the one that gets everybody's attention. I think that's the one where we feel most acutely that tension between genuinely wanting to grow and get better. Um, if you look at the happiness research, getting better at things is a big piece of what makes life satisfying. It's why people are listening to this podcast, by the way. Right, right. But we also deeply need to be seen and accepted and respected and loved the way we are now. And that's the tension that shows up most acutely around evaluation. So I would say you were talking work about ratios, you know, of positive Mm -hmm. and negative. Mm -hmm. Evaluation, by the way, can be positive. Like that was the best episode we've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) That doubles as appreciation, but it is a judgment compared to something. 
But what I would say is that we really should be appreciating and coaching throughout the year, day in and day out in small practices and how we work together. And that actually takes some of the pressure off of at the end of the year, like, so let's just get a sense where we stand. So that that tells us what do we want to work on next? What do we want to improve? What are our priorities for next year? And Carol Dweck's work on shifting from a fixed mindset, I'm good enough or not good enough, smart enough or not smart enough mm-hmm. to a growth mindset. You know, I am learning my whole life and feedback is a way to get a sense of where I stand and what I could do and work on next as a leader. I think is part of what helps us sit with those two wanting to grow and be accepted right? and hear right. feedback, not as verdict um, or imprint, but instead as input. Yeah. I mean, great leaders, they want to learn and grow. And just as we sort of sum up, I mean, I think most of us think we're, you know, in about as divided a world as we've ever been. Maybe every generation says that. I don't know. You know, maybe they have for thousands of years, but um, it does feel that way. Every, you know, people are in their own tribes and they're hearing their own truth and it's self-reinforcing. And, you know, it's hard to solve the world's big problems if everybody thinks they're right and there are all these camps and nobody's talking and nobody's listening. It's easy to feel hopeless amidst the division that's tearing this country and a lot of other places apart. Do you have like a, a message of hope amidst difficult conversation and receiving feedback of how we can get out of this cycle of, um, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and lack of learning, lack of listening, lack of understanding, lack of awareness, lack of a bunch of things? Is there a message of hope for a, a world that needs hope right now? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it really feels like at least in the United States, our country is in a crucible moment and that everyone is yelling about what they're right about and frustrated that they feel misunderstood or dismissed or unheard and shifting to think about what does the other side, whatever that means to you in whatever conversation you're in, what do they feel frustrated that I don't understand about them? And what I hear is people talking, we would say talking past each other because they're talking about two different topics. So that they're each yelling about what they're right about, but they're right about different things. I don't know if you want to include political examples, but you can think about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter are talking about two completely different topics. Black Mm -hmm. Lives Matter is trying to say they are treated as if they don't matter and they are black people are disproportionately impacted by fill in the blank mm-hmm. everything and saying all lives matter is raising a different question which is do we feel like in saying black lives matter dismissing the other people well it's also true that all lives matter that is true so that's right they're both right but they're talking past each other i saw a post this morning about our new supreme court nominee saying you know what did she ever do to Democrats? And Democrats would say, nothing. That's not the point. The point is whether we should be rushing someone through mm-hmm. this process right now. And so we're just talking past each other. And I think for me, and by the way, I live in a split political household myself okay, <laughs> and in a split political family. And to me, it's about what do we each feel frustrated that the other doesn't understand about what matters to us and if we can sort of flip hats to say, rather than me being frustrated what you don't get about me, 
let me focus on what you're frustrated I don't get about you, is where the conversation can happen. I almost remind, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi said something like, seek first to understand rather than be understood. Yeah, yeah. I think if no matter how right we may be about whatever it is, if we would actually try to understand the other point of view, I think the world would be a better place. But, you know, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that. And, and social media isn't really dialogue. It's serial <laughs> monologue. And that makes it harder. So we're all reacting to a conversation that we're not even in, but it's happening yeah. around us, too, as well. well. Indeed, so, well said. And yeah. I have been in the communications business long enough to know that that is the last word. When the last word is spoken, as well as that last word was spoken, it's time to land the plane for sure. I won't do that, though. I would be remiss if I landed the plane before, Sheila, I gave you a chance to let listeners know how they can connect with you online, how they can learn more about you, your books, and uh, your services. So one of the gifts of having a very unique last name is that I'm easy to find. So Sheila Heen, you will find Triad Consulting very quickly. And we have a page called Help Yourself, um, where there are resources. We also will have ready in November some kits that leaders can use quick prep to get ready to have more meaningful conversations with the people around them and a kit for team members to get the most out of their own review conversations. Um, and like, I got feedback, now what? What do I do with it? And so those will be available through the Triad consulting website. We also have a Facebook page, of course, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So you can find me on any of those places. Fabulous. Well, I'm going to do what I do at the end of every episode. And it's always, I've never said this before, but it's always very, uh, I feel inadequate because I'm trying to sum up a conversation with someone who graduated from Harvard Business School and someone who was taught at Harvard Law School. So here goes nothing. I think there's three points, listeners, that you can pull from uh, this uh, very robust conversation that we had with Sheila Heen today about difficult conversations and uh, the power of and the difficulty of feedback, which is sort of a fourth kind of, of difficult conversation. Point number one, your choices when it comes to difficult conversations are not simply to explain why you're right and why the other person is wrong or avoiding it altogether. Those aren't your only two choices. There is a third way. In fact, there are multiple third ways. You can think of difficult conversations, which we call crucible conversations, as an opportunity to listen, not talk. An opportunity to hear not just their audible voice, but their internal voice. Aim to understand in those difficult conversations first, not to persuade. Two, Focus not on blame, but on contribution. I'm going to say that again. Don't focus in a difficult conversation on blame, who's right, who's wrong, but on contribution. Do not assume that one person is completely responsible for the problem you're discussing, but that each of you is responsible for aspects of it. Owning your responsibility in the crisis frees up others to own their part as well. And a crisis can de-escalate quickly as Sheila pointed out, a crisis can de-escalate quickly when that kind of breakthrough occurs. And then the third point on the subject of receiving feedback. And that's to remember this, that receiving feedback is in and of itself a leadership skill. Don't be afraid to ask for feedback. There's three basic types, appreciation, coaching, and evaluation. And here's perhaps the best tip of all. Don't ask for it all in one big lump. 
You can ask for things individually. And you can ask with time in between them. Don't overdo it because it can be difficult to receive. It's difficult to give. It can be difficult to receive. So ask for it as it comes up, as it comes along. You don't have to wait for annual evaluations. You can ask as time goes on. Thank you, listener, for spending your time with us on this episode of Beyond the Crucible. Warwick and I have a little favor to ask you if uh, you've enjoyed what you've heard here, if you, if you found our conversation with Sheila Heen helpful, please click subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on right now. That will ensure that you will never miss a conversation. And we have one every week that is, uh, is just about as robust on all kinds of different subjects on how you can overcome your crucibles and find hope and healing. And until the next time that we're together, uh, remember this about crucible experiences, that they are painful, they are traumatic, they are uh, tragic sometimes, they do change the trajectory of your life. But here's the good news, they're not the end of your story. A crucible experience is not a period on a sentence that describes your life, it's a comma, and you get to determine what you write next. And if you learn the lessons of your crucible, if you apply those lessons to your vision and you make that vision a reality, what comes after that comma can be the most rewarding chapter of your book and the most rewarding time of your life. Because where it ends up, the path it leads to, the road it puts you on, is to a life of significance. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.